Just this past week, I ran across an article from Houston, from the Houston Chronicle, and uh, the headline was, New Katie Bucky's has gas pumps as far as the eye can see. Uh, And so I was intrigued, and uh, so I read a little bit further into the article, and here are some of the quotes from the article. It says, the familiar face towered over Interstate 10, but the beaver's goofy grin was obscured by a coming soon sign. A few days remained before the new Bucky's and Katie would throw open its doors to customers eager to buy gasoline and snacks after availing themselves of the famously clean, spacious bathrooms. The writer goes on. This is a, this is great journalism, by the way. I was intrigued by reports that it would have 100 gas pumps. The places where I buy gasoline have at most a dozen pumps, and I couldn't imagine what 100 gas pumps in one spot would look like or why so many would be necessary. More on that later. The entrances were barricaded with orange barrels, so I parked across the street and walked onto the vast property. From where I stood on the eastern edge of the parking lot, a long row of pumps stretched westward as far as I could see. It took 10 minutes to walk to the end and back. Devoid of customers poised for the oncoming onslaught, the place essentially was a great silent monument to the glory of fossil fuels. And then it goes on. To talk about the beauty of this Bucky's. Now, I love that article, and here's why. Because I had not been in Bucky's until maybe two or three years ago. But every time I drove to Houston, I would drive by the Bucky's in Waller. And I thought the same thing this guy thought. I would look and think, how are there so many gas stations? And what's the big deal about this place? I would drive by, I would drive back, and finally one day on my way home from Houston, I needed to use the facilities, so I stopped into the Bucky's. By the way, I meant to show this. This was the uh, photograph that was in the Houston Chronicle that accompanied the article. Gas stations as far as the eye can see, stretching off into the distance. Well, I stopped at that Bucky's in Waller, and I walked in to use the restroom, and I was astounded, like many of you have been, if you've ever walked into one of these places. Just, you know, bathroom stalls going well off into the distance when you walk in. People cleaning immediately, all the time. And it wasn't just the gas stations, it wasn't just the bathrooms, it was the beef jerky and the fudge and all of the treats that were everywhere inside that place. I drove off and I thought, I'm going to stop here every chance I get, even if I don't need anything. Even if I don't need to go to the bathroom, even if I don't technically need to eat anything, I'm just going to stop for something. And the next time my wife and I were in the car together on the way back from Houston, I said, we have to stop there. And she said, what do you need? I said, nothing. We just need to stop. And you got to see this place, right? If you've ever walked in, it changes your life, right? It absolutely changed my life. And and in the changing of my life, I thought two things. I want to be in this place. I want to be close to this place. And I want other people to draw close to this place, Right, every chance I get, I want to go into Bucky's. I had driven by it maybe for years and never knew the storehouse of blessings that lay inside. Now, why do I share that with you? Here's why. Because as we read the New Testament, we get the sense that when the early Christians encountered Jesus, it was as if they had known God, but they hadn't really known God until they encountered Jesus through the Spirit, right? It was as if they were from a distance kind of driving by the reality of God day in and day out, worshiping Him, going into the synagogue, reading His Word. But then when they encountered Jesus and the Spirit of God entered into their lives, all of a sudden everything changed. 
So that as you read the New Testament, there's this sense that there is a storehouse of riches contained in Jesus Christ that they had never seen before. And so they get to writing and preaching and singing and proclaiming in Jesus Christ, I can know God again. I can really know him. In Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven of my sin. In Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about the fear of death anymore because I have the hope of resurrection. There's reconciliation between the world and God, between me and God, between me and people of other nations. All of these blessings packed into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are a few books in particular in the New Testament where this awe at the reality of the gospel is powerfully evident. And Ephesians is one of them. If you were to say to me, uh, I want to read a book or two of the New Testament where the gospel of Jesus Christ is most on display, Ephesians might be the first one I would suggest to you. Because here's what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. He begins chapters one through three, and he says, all I'm going to do is tell you all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. All of the great things that resulted from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul doesn't even get into what we ought to do about it until the second half of the book. Right? The only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians is the command, remember, in chapter 2. Just remember. Just remember everything that God has done. But what Paul does is he says, Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and God did this in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came, and I just want you to remember all of this and praise God. And the idea behind Ephesians is, when you meditate upon the good news of Jesus Christ, when you really encounter the reality of the gospel, it's going to change everything. You're going to say, I want to draw near to God and I want other people to draw near to him as well. Nothing will be the same. We're going to look this morning at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we'll see Paul really just begin by laying out every spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. All right, but before I dive into the specific passage, let me just give a little background of the book of Ephesians. Author, of course, is Paul. The recipients are the church in Ephesus, and it's probably written around AD 61 or 62. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus is this city in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. One of the most populous cities. Rome had more people. Athens had more people. Ephesus was probably the third most populous city in the Roman Empire. It was a Greek city. Their primary religion was the worship of the goddess Artemis. Here's a statue of Artemis. Uh, Artemis was a goddess of animals and of hunting. She was a provider goddess, right? So this is a pagan city. And as you read through the New Testament, Paul had spent a, a significant amount of time in Ephesus, on his third missionary journey, he was there from about 53 to 56. He stopped in Ephesus and he stayed there for three years and he preached the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, more and more people came to believe in Jesus. And here's what actually happened in Ephesus. There were silversmiths who made statues of Artemis and they would sell them to the local population so you could worship Artemis in your home, right? But as Paul preached the gospel, the silversmiths got nervous because fewer people were buying their statues. And so they got together and they said, Paul's going to ruin us. And they started a riot and they began to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And they dragged Paul into the local amphitheater and planned to kill him. A local official stepped in, saved Paul's life, and then he left Ephesus for a while and then came back about a year later. And in Acts 20, you have this beautiful sermon that Paul gives to the elders of the church of Ephesus, where he says, you guys stay focused on Jesus. All right, and then Paul sailed away. He went to Jerusalem. He was arrested in Jerusalem. Eventually, he made his way all the way to Rome to appeal to Caesar. And while he was waiting on his trial, he writes this letter back to the Ephesians. So these are people that Paul knows. These are people that Paul loves. And he recognizes they're in a hostile culture. They're in an idolatrous culture, a sexually immoral culture a violent culture. And so they feel besieged. And so he writes this letter to the Ephesians to say, I want you to remember what God did for you. You feel besieged, but the reality is you're blessed. And so the idea of our first section of Ephesians is this. Paul says, God has given us every imaginable spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ. You feel in the face of a pagan culture, like you are poor, you are forgotten, you are isolated. He says, no, that's not true. We are going to remember and revel in the good news of the gospel. All right, so let's begin Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to verse 3 to begin with. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So here's where he begins. He says, okay, you have every spiritual blessing. Right after Paul says, hi, I'm Paul. I'm writing to you, the Ephesians. He begins, he says, God be praised for every spiritual blessing he's given us. Now, very few books of the New Testament begin quite like this. All right, but Paul begins in chapter three and he says, God's given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. These are not material blessings or physical blessings. These are spiritual blessings. Everything you need in order to know God, everything you need in order to have your sin forgiven, everything you need in order to have eternal life, God has given us in Jesus Christ. Now here's what's amazing about the passage we're about to dive into. Verses 3 through 14 constitute the longest Greek sentence in the entire New Testament. All right, it's 202 words long, 12 verses. Paul gets so excited about the blessings in Christ that he just starts writing. He doesn't take a breath for 200 words. Those of you who have small kids, you've seen this phenomenon, right? They come home and they go, dad, guess what? We were playing in the creek and we saw a rabbit and we tried to catch the rabbit. We couldn't catch the rabbit, but we put a carrot out and then we, and you go, whoa, right? Slow down. They're so excited. They don't take a breath. That's what happens to Paul. He says, I have to tell you about the blessings of God in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't pick up the pen for 12 verses. Now in your English Bible, it's probably been separated by some punctuation. Otherwise we would read and go, what in the world? is happening. But Paul lays out, God has given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. There are three primary blessings, and they actually each correlate to a member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he says, first of all, God chose us for his family. Look at verses four through six. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So Paul begins and he says, all right, the first blessing I want to mention is this. We praise God because he chose us to be a part of his family. Multiple times throughout this section, Paul mentions the concept of chosenness or election or predestination. He uses a few different words that relate to this idea of chosenness. Now, what's fascinating is when Paul uses the idea of election, he uses it as a comfort that if you know Jesus Christ, you can praise God because you know Jesus Christ for this reason. God said, I want you in my family. God chose you. In fact, every time in the New Testament that the concept of election is mentioned, it's in this type of a setting. It is not primarily mentioned in the context of saying, hey, there's this theological puzzle that we got to figure out. That's not how election is discussed. Instead, election is discussed always for Christians who have already trusted in Jesus Christ to say, you have been chosen. Right? For many of us, election is a very difficult theological concept. But biblically, what's interesting is the scripture will lay certain things side to side and not try to always sort them out for us. Right? So we are clear in the scripture that Jesus died for the entire world, for everybody. First John 2 tells us that for the whole world. And there's a free offer of salvation for everybody who believes. And yet the scripture is also clear that God has chosen his people. And so we read it and we go, well, how do those two fit together? And the Bible doesn't actually answer that conundrum for us. It leaves the tension intact to say, look, you can trust God. Here's what you can trust. God is good. God is gracious. God went to great lengths to redeem his people. And we're going to see that further in this passage. But we also can trust that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. He chose you. And we say, I don't understand how that works together. And I think God would say, it's okay. You don't have to. Because God does. And I don't know if anybody in this room was in the marching band. I was in the marching band in high school. And at the beginning of every marching band season, they would give us a little booklet that had all of the formations that we were supposed to march through as we played songs. And so we would stand on a parking lot next to the school while we practiced. And at the beginning of each season, what we do is we would mark each spot that we were supposed to go to. So we'd mark on this yard line and this hash mark, and then you would march over here and mark this one. And we'd stand there for a while while the band director would adjust us. Now, what was always interesting about it was if you were in the marching band, You had no idea what the formation looked like, right? You were standing on the parking lot or on the field, and all you could see was the person in front of you, the person behind you, maybe a few people around. All you really knew was your route. And our band director had a very tall metal tower, and he would stand up in that tower with a megaphone, and he'd say, Matt, go ahead and move one inch over to the right. Right? So you'd move over. Bill, stop talking. I see you. Right? And he'd say things like that. And you couldn't see anything, but you had to trust that he could see everything, right? So from his vantage point, he would arrange the formation 
And you just have to trust. He'd say, okay, now go march from A to B. And you would trust him that as you're marching from A to B, you weren't going to smack into a person on the way there. You didn't see the big picture, but you trusted the guy with the plan, right? That's when we look at the New Testament, what the scripture seems to be saying about this concept of election and responsibility. We don't get it. We don't understand it fully. But Paul talks about election and chosenness to say this. If you know Jesus, it's because God wanted you and chose you for his family. Earlier this summer, I watched the movie Lion. I don't know how many of you have seen Lion. Powerful movie about a young Indian boy who is separated from his family and then adopted by an Australian family. And the movie is essentially his story to try to find his birth family. But there's this moment in the movie, kind of halfway through, three quarters through, where this, this man now, this Indian man who's grown up with this Australian family, he's talking to his adoptive mom and he says, you know, mom, I'm, I'm really sorry that you had to get me and my adoptive brother with all of our problems I'm sorry that that's what your life gave you. And she looks at him and there's this really powerful moment where she says, no, this is what we chose. She says, we wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. All right, what is Paul saying here in the first few verses of Ephesians 1? God would look at you and me and say, with all your sin, with all your problems, And the fact that you were destined to be separated from God. God said, I I wanted you. And then what happens in the next section of Ephesians 1 is Paul lays out the great lengths that God went to to adopt us. God moved heaven and earth and he gave his own son to adopt us. Look at verses 7 to 12 with me for just a minute. I'm going to start at the end of verse 6. He says, he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It says God chose us for his family and then he redeemed us through Jesus. Jesus is the beloved one. And he says, look, in Jesus Christ, God redeemed us. God wanted to adopt us into his family. And so here's what he did. He gave his son and it says through his blood, that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gave us redemption. Redemption is a word here in the Greek that simply means that you were, you were set free from the consequences of your sin, right? What are the consequences of our sin? Death, separation from God. The only way to be free from the consequences of sin is to be forgiven and made clean. And the only way for that to happen, the only way for God to be able to adopt us into his family was to cleanse us. And the only way for him to do that was through his own son. And so Paul says, God gave his son, his beloved son, 
so we could be set free. And then he gets excited again and he says he did this all through the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And the idea is, Paul says, look at what God has done in Jesus. He is a generous God. There's a big difference between a God who gives grudgingly and a God who gives lavishly. Right. And Paul will say, look, we have a God who gives lavishly over and over. He says this was according to the good and kind intention of his will. In other words, God didn't say, you know what, I guess I got to do this in order to get these dirty people with me. Instead, he said, it's his good pleasure to redeem us through Jesus. And he opened the storehouse of grace and he said, you can have all of it. Those who know me know that I'm a big fan of Mexican food and of chips and salsa. And uh, when I go to a restaurant that has Mexican cuisine, I'll be honest, uh, it troubles me in my soul if they charge me for chips and salsa. Just feels communist to me. It feels un-American, right? Like I want to go in and I want it to be free. That feels right. This is Texas. You should give me chips and salsa, but I'll be honest. I don't just want you to give me one basket and a little bitty thing of salsa, right? There's one restaurant that I go to sometimes and, and I have one friend that every time we go there, he looks at the waitress and they give these little containers of salsa like this, right? And he looks and he goes, this, this ain't going to be nearly enough. Okay, go back there and find a larger bowl for us. All right, what do I want? Before I even finish the basket, I want the waiter to come along with that big scoop and go like this, right? And dump more in. Give me a giant bowl. Salsa upon salsa upon salsa. That's what I want. Lavish it upon me. What Paul says is this. This is how God approaches grace. Right? You don't have to beg for it. You don't have to plead for it. You don't have to hope that God is going to be nice. He says, no, God opened the storehouse and he lavished his grace upon us. For everybody who trusts in Jesus, there is grace upon grace upon grace. And just when you think you're getting to the bottom of the riches, he pours more grace and more grace. And Paul goes on and he says, this was all a part of God's plan according to the counsel of his will because what did he want to do? He was looking forward to summing up everything in Christ. See, God didn't just have my salvation in mind, but he actually had the reconciliation of the world so that all of the universe would look and say, praise God for his glorious grace. The reconciliation of me to God, the reconciliation of the entire world to God, right? You read in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning because it was broken due to the fall. Look at what's happening right now in Texas. The earth is busted. It doesn't work like it was supposed to. And so God will reconcile the world to himself, even creation itself. But even beyond that, we'll see this in Ephesians, that he will reconcile us to one another, right? And not just those of us in this room, but men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? There's been a lot of talk in our world over the last couple of years about racial and ethnic reconciliation. As we read Ephesians, and we're going to get into this in Ephesians too, 
We're going to see that the gospel has this cosmic impact where as I am reconciled to God, now I will want to be reconciled to others, even those who don't look like me or speak like me or talk like me, because what God is doing is he is creating a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The only hope for reconciliation in our world is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look at what God has done and praise him. That's the news that he lays out for us in Ephesians chapter 1, right off the bat. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the, the fantastic news that Paul lays out is that reconciliation between us and God can happen because Jesus died for our sin and he rose again. And there's an open invitation. Anybody who will believe, anybody, no matter what you have done, no matter where you are from, no matter what your background Anybody has this invitation to trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Paul says, if you know him, you look up and you say, praise God's glory for what he did in Jesus. He chose us for his family. He redeemed us through Jesus. And then thirdly, he sealed us with his spirit. Look at verses 13 to 14. In him, you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He says, once you believed, once you're adopted, once you're in God's family, he also wants you to know you've been sealed with the spirit. Paul uses two images here. One is the image of a seal. This word for seal is used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament, but ultimately it's like a seal of ownership. Think about like a brand on a cow. That's how it's used in some of the contemporary literature to the New Testament. People would put a seal or a brand on their animals and say, that's mine. Right In my office, I have, I don't know, a lot of books, some books that I got in seminary, books that I've purchased since then. And uh, over the years, uh, I've noticed that sometimes people will borrow my books and then forget where they came from. So a few years ago, uh, somebody bought me a little embosser, right? And I put this on the front page of every one of my books from the library of. Matthew Robert Morton, if you open that book, you know that it's mine. It reduces church-based theft, right? <laughs> From people taking away my books. That's a seal. It says that's mine, right? It's not yours, it's mine. It belongs to me. That's what Paul says, except in this case, it's the Holy Spirit who operates as a seal. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, God gave the Holy Spirit and said, that one is mine. It doesn't belong to the enemy. He doesn't belong to Satan. She doesn't belong to the forces of darkness. She doesn't belong to death. That one's mine. And he gave his spirit to seal the deal. The other picture that he uses is that of a down payment. Right? If you uh, have purchased a car or a house, you know, you put a down payment and that down payment, of course, constitutes a promise that you will pay the rest, right? That one day it will fully belong to you. But the imagery here that, that Paul uses is he says the spirit is a seal, but also a down payment. And what that down payment guarantees is the redemption of God's own possession, that one day he is going to get us. 
that Jesus will come back and claim us and take us to be with him. I was thinking this week, some of you understand this concept this morning because you put it into practice when you came in this morning. You brought your kids into the children's ministry. And what did we do? We placed upon them a seal, a little name tag, and it has their name. And you have a corresponding name tag with the number. Right, some of you will want the children back after the service is over. So what will you do? You will take that little tag and you will match it to the tag on them. And you will say, I'm here to redeem my own possession. Right? You don't have that little tag. We won't let you have your kids back. No, actually, I'm just kidding. We have enough problems. We'll get the kid back eventually. Okay? But the reality is that's, that's the same imagery. The Spirit sealed you as God's and then it's a down payment. It's a promise. He's coming back to claim his possession. That there are future promises that we can take to the bank based on what Jesus has done. And so we are chosen for his family, redeemed through Jesus, and sealed with the Spirit. Again, Paul lays all of this out and he says, if all of this is true, everything changes. And he's going to get there in verses four to six, uh, chapters 4 to 6 to say, in light of all this, here's what you do. But right now he says, no, let's just praise him. Let's draw near to him. If you know Jesus Christ, all of this is true. So as we close then, how, how do we respond? Because we have every spiritual blessing. First thing is this. We seek to know Jesus better. Read his word. Draw near. You see this storehouse of blessings in Jesus Christ and you say, I want to be near him. I want to know more about who he is. I want to invest my time in prayer. I want to invest my time in the word. I want to join a group where other people can help me know the scripture. All of the programs that we do here ultimately are linked to this goal. We want as a church to know Jesus better. And we know him better through his word. And we know him better through community. And so we don't just drive by on the highway as we skim the word and say, that looks like a cool place to be in fellowship with Jesus. But we park the car for a while and we go in and we go, man, look at this. There's a storehouse of blessings in Jesus Christ. And then we seek to proclaim Jesus boldly. Right? Not as something to check off a list, but just so that we instead say this, I want to know him. And once I know him, I recognize, man, everybody needs to know this. Been chosen by God, redeemed through Jesus, sealed by the spirit. Everybody needs to know this. We want everybody to come in. Because in Jesus Christ, we have every imaginable spiritual blessing. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for this time. What a joyful passage it is this morning to focus on the beauty of the name of Jesus Christ and all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ. I pray we would seek to draw near to him. And I pray we would seek to know him better and to proclaim him to those who need to know him. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Take the opportunity to sign up for a group or get connected this morning. We'll see you next week.